The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to talk this morning about loving strangers. Now, we are continuing our study of 3 John this morning which, as I told you a couple weeks ago, this is the shortest epistle in the New Testament. And we, looked, we looked last week at the salutation in verse 1, um, and then following the opening greeting in Greco-Roman letters, there often followed an exordium, and in which the writer establishes rapport with his readers. So we see this in verse 2 through 4, where following the exordium, John now addresses himself to the concerns of, In verses 5 through 8, this is getting to the real point he's writing. And he praises Gaius for his faithfulness in showing hospitality to the traveling preachers, teachers. Now, in our last study, we looked at verse 1, which really is a spoof text. That's not a proof text, okay? Something people use as a proof text that doesn't fit their idea at all. The spoof text for the health-wealth doctrine... It says, Dear friend, I'm praying that everything prosper with you and that you be in good health, as I know you're prospering spiritually. Now, as he goes on in this, he he demonstrates clearly that Gaius was prospering spiritually. He was a man who was walking with God. And he's just, this is just a standard opening in a letter for the day. Commenting on this verse, John Stott writes, both verbs for prosper and be in health belong to the everyday language of letter writing. Okay, common... Matter of fact, this phrase that he uses here in verse 1 was so common that sometimes it was condensed into only initials. And everyone knew what the writer meant just from the initials. The abbreviation used in Latin was S-V-B-E-E-V. They wouldn't even write it out. They just put that in there. And that, that stood for Sivale's Beniest Ego Valio, which meant, if you are well, it is good, I am well. Just your standard greeting like we would say, you know, hope this letter finds you well or something like that. All right? What I want to stress here is that this verse has nothing to do with the doctrine of health-wealth that they try to push that into. This is not a doctrinal statement. This is just an opening greeting common in many letters, secular and Christian. So it can't be pressed into this doctrine of prosperity. In verse 3, he said, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. We kind of focused on this last week. This Gaius was walking in the truth, which meant he was abiding in Christ. He was being an image bearer. And now John is going to tell us what this looked like in Gaius's life in the next four verses. And so we meet this man Gaius, beloved by God. Beloved by John, called that three times in this short letter. This man was, he lived his life in harmony with the truth. And biblical, truth, biblical love is a product of abiding in the truth. In other words, when you live in the truth, you love. Let's look at verse 5. 
He says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Now, what is John talking about here? Well, what Gaius was doing for these brothers that were strangers? Who, what was he doing? How was he reaching out to them? Well, when we read 2 John and 3 John together, it becomes apparent that two groups of missionaries were moving among the churches. One group was teaching error, and the other group was teaching the truth. So let's look at a little historical background here. In the first century, there was a widespread ministry of itinerant teachers and preachers. They would travel around from church to church, from town to town, preaching. And at that time, there were many traveling around, they're preaching the gospel, they're sharing the word of God, and in these travels, they needed a place to stay. After they'd spent the day preaching or going from house to house, they'd need a place to spend the night. And we see from historical sources that inns in the first century tended to be little more than brothels. So you really didn't want to stay there. The rabbis in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral law and tradition, placed innkeepers on the lowest scale of human degradation. That's what they thought about them. Plato actually labeled innkeepers as pirates, the lowest of the low. <laughs> so itinerant preachers would have had not been very comfortable staying there in such places. So they would have needed hospitality from believers. And hospitality would include a place to stay, uh, food, and sometimes even money, providing for them, helping them out. So it's not hard to see how this custom could be abused by false teachers. And many people did. Hey, you make a good living, let's just travel around and you know, share this stuff and they'll take care of us, they'll put us up. The Didache, you familiar with that? is a 2nd century book on church order. It's one of the earliest fragments that we have, and it lays down strict rules concerning itinerant preachers and teachers. It was an early code of conduct that provided guidelines for both churches and ministers of the word to follow. Okay, here's, here's the guidelines for these guys. The Didache states this, Whosoever therefore cometh and teacheth you all these things that have been said before, receive him. But if he teaches himself, but if the teacher himself turn and teach another doctrine to the destruction of this, hear him not. But if he teach so as to increase righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord, receive him as the Lord. But concerning the apostles and prophets, according to the decree of the gospel, thus do. Let every apostle that cometh to you be received as the Lord, but he shall not remain except one day. But if there be need, also the next. If he remains three days, he's a false prophet. <laughs> they just got it, you know, this, we don't want these people hanging around mooching off you, okay? One or two days, that's it. If he tries to stay a third, so what do you think this is going to do to the teachers? Well, we're, we've been here two days, we better move on. Because they're going to be calling us a false prophet. The Didache goes on, And when the apostle goeth away, let him take nothing but bread until he lodge it. But if he asks money, he's a false prophet. Again, this would stop a lot of the stuff that was going on because they didn't want to be labeled as a false prophet. Now, the Didache goes on to say they are to be viewed as a Christ monger. In other words, someone who's seeking to live off the reputation of the gospel for gain. They're just trying to make a living doing this and they're not preaching the truth. Now, you can see how seriously the early church considered false teaching and false teachers. 
They didn't want this going on, so they're trying to stop it. Now, notice what 2 John says. In 2 John 1.10, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. So John is warning his readers of the missionary efforts of the secessionist false teachers and of the danger of welcoming them. You know, nothing threatens the church more than false doctrine. So he's saying, be careful. Don't receive them. Don't even give them a greeting. Now, these strong warnings against bringing false teachers into their homes was necessary because the Jews had a list of six things that commend a man in the life to come. What was the first thing on that list? Six things that commend someone in the life to come. First thing, what do you think? It was hospitality. Hospitality was number one on that list. Hospitality is loving strangers. Now, we don't usually think of hospitality as one of the top ten commands, but to the Jews, it was number one. And to that whole ancient culture, it was very important. Let me show you just how important hospitality was. Genesis 19.8 says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. That's very important. They've come into my house. I have to protect them. You know the context of this verse? Homosexual men have surrounded Lot's house, demanding that he send out these two men that were staying with him. These were good-looking angels. And they, these guys are surrounded the house wanting these men. So Lot steps in. He goes, steps outside. He closes the door behind him. He's trying to defuse the situation. He pleads with them not to act so wickedly. And he offers to surrender his two daughters to the appetites of these depraved degenerates. Here, take my daughters. I want to protect these men. Can you? We can't even hardly fathom that, I don't think. Okay? Uh, instead of my daughters, I would have offered them the pointed barrel of my shotgun. Okay? You know, this is not going to happen. And we often write this off, maybe this actions of a lousy father, okay? What's wrong with this guy? But we see a very familiar story, another one just like this, in Judges. Here, a bunch of wicked men come to the man's house and demand that he bring the visitor out so they may know him. Which, you know, means sexual relations. Judges 19.23 And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers... Do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Again, he's come into my house. That brings him under my protection. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here is my, my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now, these stories are hard for us to wrap our head around, okay? In both these stories, we have men offering their daughters to a homosexual crowd in order to protect their guests in the home. That's extreme, wouldn't you say? Why would they do this? What would possess the fathers to do something so unspeakable? It was hospitality. The crowds demanded that Lot and the man in Judges 19 turn over their guests this was an unthinkable thing as far as the protection guaranteed to one who comes under the roof of one's house in hospitality. It was a violation of hospitality. 
Now, these are bizarre incidents of hospitality, but I think they help us see how important this was to these people that they would go this far. This is how much they care. And they're doing this for strangers. These are not friends. These are not people they know. They just met them. They're loving these strangers to the point of sacrificing. Now, in case you think this is a little crazy, outdated practice, let me share with you something from David Instone Brewer's book. The book is entitled Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. Very good book. I think he does a great job in this book. But in this book, he outlines the Muslim custom of muta marriage. Now, in Islamic law, there's something called pleasure marriage. Muta marriage. You can search this, you know, go, don't use Google, use uh, Brave or something, but, but duck, duck, go. But uh, look up muta marriage in Shiite law. It's still practiced today, although it's a little more under the table right now. They don't want to advertise it. But under this law, one could marry someone for just a short period. A man could enter a marriage agreement with a girl or woman, usually in Muslims it's a girl, young girl, okay? For a few nights and then end it. It's just temporary. This is something they've inherited, they still practice it. It's a part of Islamic law. Brewer said this, he said it was part of the culture and probably part of hospitality culture. You're like, what, how does this connect with hospitality? You'll catch it here. He says, you can imagine that someone comes along Hospitality is so important in the Arabic culture, and you give them every comfort you can imagine. You give them food. You give them the best place in the house or the tent. You can, you, and you can imagine, you might also give them a wife for the night. I mean, we're being hospital, right? Hospitable, you know, just here. You can have my wife for the night. I want to meet every need you have. Now, Islam demands that there be an actual marriage ceremony, though. Okay, You can give them your wife, but you have to get divorced. You give them their wife. They have a wedding ceremony, and then a little quick marriage. And in the morning, the man says, I divorce you. And then she goes back, and you remarry your wife. Okay, it's over. The woman can go back to her original husband who divorced her for the night, and it's just legal. Now, again, I can't imagine that either, okay? You know, but this is part of the hospitality culture. Now, David Brewer thinks that this may be the background to a strange prohibition that we see in Deuteronomy 24, where a woman gets divorced from her husband, the husband puts her away, then she remarries. And then the second husband, he puts her away, and the Bible says she can't go back to her first husband, right? Deuteronomy 24, 4 says, Then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. Can't take her back. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And you shall not bring sin upon the land, for Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, so he could not remarry this woman that had been married to somebody else. She was married to him, but they divorced. She married somebody else. She's separate now. She's free. He can't marry her. Why? Why not? I mean, she could marry a complete stranger. That'd be okay. She could marry someone she's committed adultery with, and that would be okay. She can marry anyone, but she can't marry the person she was originally married to. Why? Well, Brewer suggests, and I think he might be onto something here. He says, if that pleasure marriage was happening in Moses' time, this would be the exact way in which they would stop it. If a man divorces his wife and someone else marries her, 
then the man can't go and remarry his wife. So, understanding the importance that was placed on hospitality helps us to understand why Lazarus cautioned against welcoming false teachers into the home. But do you understand what Brewer is saying here? He's just saying, you know, this might help us make sense of this verse. This is why they're trying to stop this pleasure marriage thing that was so big as part of hospitality culture. So listen, if you if you divorce your wife and you let someone else, you can't take her back again. So you guys got to stop this. And that I think there might be something to it. But hospitality wasn't something that was just a big deal to the Jews. In the ancient world, hospitality was seen as a duty even on the secular side. Strangers were supposedly under the protection of Zeus Xenios, who was known as the god of strangers. Xenos means stranger, and the ancient world understood that there was a deity to take care of strangers. And if they wanted to have that deity on their side and not against them, they needed to be kind to strangers. So this is good. Everybody's kind of looking out for strangers, right? Now, as we come to the New Testament, we see that hospitality is very important in God's sight. Just like it was for Israel, it's important to the church. We see it in Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another. I like this. Without grumbling. Okay, do it. We're doing it. No, he says, don't grumble about it. Just do it. It's the right thing to do. Now, the word hospitality here comes from the Greek word philoxenos, which comes from two Greek words, philos, meaning to love, and xenos, meaning stranger. So hospitality means to love strangers, people you don't know, not your relatives, not your friends. You don't even know this person. You're to love them. Now, the author of Hebrews exhorts us to be hospitable because some have entertained angels, he said, unaware. Okay, that actually happened in Genesis 19 there, right? They were angels he was trying to protect. He didn't know that. Uh, Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says, Let brotherly love continue, and do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, the word hospitality here is the same word we saw in 1 Peter 4, 9. So the writer, he was just saying, hospitality is a matter of love. And as Christians, we're called to love. We're called to love even strangers. That's what we're to do. You know, we, I think we see an example of this in Luke 24, 28 through 29. You know the context here in Luke 24. Uh, Lord's been crucified. Two disciples are walking down the road. I think they're probably husband and wife. But they're leaving Jerusalem and they're just, you know, talking about the events of the day. And all of a sudden, Yeshua comes and starts walking with them. But they don't know who he is. He's just a stranger to them. You know, they're walking with them, and he says, well, what are you guys talking about? He goes, what are you, you don't know what's going on here? And they're, they're, you know, going along the way. And says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. This couple was going to their village. And the, he, that's the Lord, he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. Okay, this, he's a stranger. They don't know. Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. And, you know, they ate together and the Lord revealed to them who he was. But they're inviting this stranger to come into their house. They were hospitable to the Lord, even though they had no clue it was the Lord. So it's not only angels they can entertain unaware, they're entertaining the Lord unaware. And believers, I think we're still called to love strangers. 
What does that look like? I'm not giving my daughters out to anybody, okay. I'm not giving my wife to anybody, okay. No, we're not doing that, but we're called to love strangers. So whatever the Bible calls us to do as far as love, we do that towards people. You know, whether it be visitors that come in here, you make them feel like they're welcome. You know, it's hard to walk into a church. It's not hard to walk into a big church, okay. No one knows you're there. Here, if you don't notice somebody, something's wrong with you, okay. You're not paying attention. You're sleeping or whatever, all right. But you notice them and you welcome them. Uh, It's helping people with needs. If you have the ability to help someone, you see a stranger and they have a need, you help them out. However you can do that. We're called to love people. Even strangers, people we don't know. I mean, people tend to help out, you know, their relatives and their friends, but this is a people who have a need, some kind of need. To them, it might have been lodging. It was ever they were helping them out, all right? So 2 John deals with the warning, and he's telling them, because again, we're in this hospitality culture, don't show hospitality to heretics, that's 2 John. Don't show them. Don't help them out. While 3 John is the opposite, and it says, help out these Christian people, these itinerant preachers that are on here. And the contrast between these letters is interesting. In one, they're told to refuse the false. In another, they're said, receive the true. Re- don't help those heretics. Listen, I know hospitality is big, but you have to draw the line of truth. Okay? We love them in the truth. Okay? So you... Truth guides, they're heretics, don't show them love. Opposite, when you get to 3 John, hey, these people are out there preaching the truth. Show them hospitality, take care of them. G. Campbell Morgan believed that hospitality was the subject of this epistle. I tend to agree with him. He said in the second epistle, John warned against false hospitality. Here, he commands true hospitality. In verse 5, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Now, all your efforts here, this is the relative pronoun hos with ion and an aorist middle subjunctive of ergazomai, which expresses a condition with the prospect of being fulfilled. All right? So Gaius had helped these brothers on every occasion and in every way possible. These people came to the church. They showed up there. And let me remind you, Gaius is not a leader in this church. He's not an elder. He's not a deacon. He, he just is a person in the church who saw a need. Okay? You don't need an office. You don't need a title. It's just serving one another. He saw this. He met the need. All right? These traveling preachers, teachers, evangelists, these brothers, that's who he's talking about. The efforts for these brothers, us, the traveling ministers, and from John's community, they were unknown to Gaius, but they came from John because they're reporting back to John what's going on. As far as Gaius, they were strangers. All right? But they had arrived in the city where Gaius lived, and he welcomed them into his home, and John is praising Gaius for his hospitality. All right? He's just saying, man, you are doing an awesome job helping these brothers out. Now, the church should have been welcoming and supporting these itinerant Christian teachers, but because of the local situation, which we'll look at next week, Gaius alone was helping these brothers to whom he knew nothing except they were teaching the truth. That's all that mattered to him. So he's reaching out, he's helping them. In verse 6, he says, Who testified to your love before the church? You will do well to send them on their journey in a matter worthy of God. Now, the who here, who testify to your love, is the itinerant Christian preachers of verse 3. 
In verse 3, he says, Brothers came and testified to your truth. So these guys are going back to John, probably in Ephesus, and they're saying, hey, man, these, this Gaius dude, he's, he's really helping people out over there. And then in verse 6, he says, who testified to your love before the church? In other words, they're, telling, they're going back and reporting to the church, hey, this guy is amazing over there. He's, he's really loving the brethren. They, bought, they brought back this favorable report. And he says they brought it back to the church. This is the first of three references to church in this letter. He mentions it in verse 6, verse 9, and verse 10. And these are the only places the word church is found in the Johannian writings. Gospel of John, 1 John, 2. This is, and I think that's a little, you know, it's a little different. The word church is from the Greek word ekklesia, and it means to call out of. I think today we have a skewed view of what church is. You know, church to most people is a building. You go to that building, you know, that building is sacred space. You know, they call the room in there where you meet the what? The sanctuary. Okay? That that is not a sanctuary. Okay? It's not holy ground. We are holy ground. All right? As believers, we are holy ground. Church is a called out group. It's a body of called out people. And the word ekklesia... In secular Greek, as well as in the Greek translation of the Tanakh, always refers to a group that assembles and meets together, never just to an entity. The manifestation of the spiritual body of Christ is the local church. The church universal always finds expression in the church local. A body of believers called out of the world into a spiritual fellowship based on the life of Yeshua within. And as you read the New Testament... You don't find any church buildings. These people are not meeting in buildings. They met in the temple, then they met in houses, and as you finish the New Testament, they still haven't built any buildings. Now, this doesn't mean the buildings are wrong, but the building is not the church. It's the believers who gather in that church. And I think the focus today has become on buildings. And it's like it's a testament to how great that preacher is, how big a building he can get. Okay, how many people can we get in here? How many people can we cram together? That all depends how much you water down the truth. The more you water it down, the more people will come. Tickle their ears, make them feel good. They'll love it. Joel's proof of that. Okay, the largest church in America. And Joel's just tickling your ears, telling you that God wants you wealthy. It worked for him. (laughs) It's really working for him. (laughs) It doesn't work so good on down the pyramid line. All right. Well, in order to encourage Gaius to continue this good work, John informs him that those who he has given hospitality to, they've come back and they're reporting to him. You know, they're hearing about what he's doing. And he says, you will do well. Now, this is interesting because this is a Greek idiom. It's found in the the Egyptian papyra. And according to Moulton and Milligan, in the vocabulary of the Greek New Testament, it's an idiom for please. In other words, that you do well means please do this. Okay? So John is saying to Gaius, please send them on their journey. And send them on their journey translates a form of the verb propempo, which functioned as a technical term for missionary support in the early church. Okay, so propempo is this is a technical term. The third edition of Bauer's lexicon defines. This, and in similar context, to assist someone in making a journey, that's what this means, send one on their way with food, money, by arranging for companions, means of travel, etc. 
Paul uses this same word in addressing the Romans. In 15.24, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and, it be, and be helped on my journey. That's propempo. In other words, I want you to assist me in making the journey. Whatever I need, you know, food, finances, travel arrangements, you help me out. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So this is a technical term for helping people on the way. And then he says, in a manner worthy of God. In other words, do it with all you got. You know, give them the best accommodations. Help them out. Make sure, you know, they're teaching the truth. Make sure they're able to continue to do that. Then in verse 7, he says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. For they have gone out. Gone out is ex ericomai, and it's found four times in the Johannian letters. In the other three places, it's used in reference to the false teachers. So John uses this verb, ex ericomai, of false teachers leaving the church in 1 John 2.19. Of false prophets going out into the world, 1 John 4, 1. Of many deceivers going out into the world, 2 John 1, 7. And of the true teachers now going out into the world. So three times he uses the false teachers. Now he's using it of the true teachers in 3 John 1, 7. Unlike the false teachers, they, uh, they have gone out, and these men like Gaius are helping the true teacher. So he says, you need to help them. We don't help the false teachers, but I want you to help the true teachers. And he says, do it. For the sake of the name. The false teachers weren't doing that. They're doing it for self-gain. They're doing it for whatever. He says, I want you to help them because they're doing it for the sake of the name. Now, this is the Greek, huper ha onometas. What is the name he's talking about here? For the sake of the name. That's found in five other places in the New Testament. Most often in contexts where people suffer persecution on account of their witness for Christ. Okay, so he's doing it for the sake of the name. So what's the name? Okay, hang on to that thought. Some say the name stands for the person and work of Yeshua, right? I agree with that. Because to the ancients, one name expressed the sum of the qualities that mark the nature of that person. When you say their name, you know, they have a good name, they have a good character, good reputation, all right? But what is the name? Is it Yeshua? Well, I don't think so, because just as the name to a Jew always meant Yahweh, so now to the Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, the name means the God of gods and the Lord of lords, Yahweh. They did it for the sake of the name. If we go back to Exodus 3, and Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, hey, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Now, I am who I am in Hebrew is ehia asher ehia. And it means I am that which exists. The root of ehia, ehia is haya. And Haya means to be or to exist. So here Elohim tells Moses his name is Ehia. He says, Ehia, Asher, Ehia. And then he says, tell the people that Ehia has sent me to you. All right? But look at the very next verse. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, 
has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout your generations. So Elohim again gives his name to Moses, but this time he says Yahweh. So which is it? <laughs> well, the two names, Ehia and Yahweh, are related. Ehia is, Yahweh is. Ehia means I exist, I will exist, I am. Yahweh includes the verb hava, meaning to exist. And the letter yod is a prefix, prefix meaning he. So Yahweh means he exists. But if it is a causative verb, it would mean he causes to exist. And both of these are true. Yahweh is the self-existent one who causes to exist. Now, if you can remember back in our study of the fourth gospel, Yeshua continually declared that he is God. He kept saying, my father. And he's underscoring the fact that he had the same nature as God. As his Jewish audience knew this to be a claim to deity, because they got mad when he says, my father. You know, they take up stones and try to kill him or something. Within the community of the Johannian Christians, the Tetragrammaton, everybody know what the Tetragrammaton is? That's Greek for the four letters. That's with reference to the yod Hey vav Hey, okay, of the divine name. Or the I am, which Ehia is the I am, was used to refer to Yeshua. In other words, the name in 3 John 7 would ultimately refer to God's name, Yahweh. But since Yeshua himself was God, and in light of the use of the I am phrases throughout the Gospel of John, Yeshua continues to say this, I am, I am, I am, I am the good shepherd, I am the light, I, you know, I'm the living water. He kept saying these, connecting himself to deity. There'd be no inconsistency in him using the designation for himself. Now, look at this verse in Philippians. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him. It's talking about Philippians 2. It's talking about the kenosis, the self-emptying of Yeshua as he leaves heaven and becomes a man. And now he says, therefore God has highly exalted. He humbled himself. God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, what name is that? Well, Christ has many names. Yeshua, Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah, Emmanuel. But here he receives a new name. And some say that's Yeshua. But it can't be Yeshua because that's not a new name. God gave him that name at birth, right? Matthew 1.21 She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation. So... That makes perfect sense. He'll save his people from their sins. All right, so it can't be Yeshua, because that name was given at birth. And secondly, there is no other name than Yahweh that has a right to be called the name above every name. What name would you put above Yahweh? Any? Thirdly, the movement in Philippians 2, from verse 9 to 11, doesn't stop at the phrase, gave him the name, but flows straight onto the universal confession that Yeshua is Lord which suggests that a significant thing is the ascription Lord, which is Yahweh, in addition to the names already known. Fourthly, in verse 10, at the name of Yeshua, it says, not the name Yeshua, but that the name of Yeshua, and the name of Yeshua is Yahweh, or Lord. And fifthly, in verse 10, is a pretty direct quotation of Isaiah 45, 23, 
where Yahweh, having declared himself to be the only God and Savior, he vows that he will yet be an object of universal worship. It is this divine honor that is now bestowed upon the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And these verses in Isaiah 45 speak of the uniqueness of the only God. In the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek word kurios means Lord, and it's represented as the personal name of Yahweh. In most English versions, Yahweh, or Lord, with all spelled in all caps, stands for Yahweh. They've taken the yod heh vav and they just spell out Lord because they got this crazy idea God doesn't want His name being said, so they just kind of covered it up. Almost 7,000 times it's in there, and I'm like, I don't think He wants it covered up, okay? But the Jews got this idea, you can't speak the name, and so they just tried to basically obliterate it. Isaiah 45.20, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. And keep on praying to a God who cannot save. All right, they're carrying this thing, you know, and Jeremiah likes to make fun of them. You get in trouble, you got to pick up your God and run with it when the flood comes. You know, the fire, you got to save your God, all this. He just, he, you know, makes fun of them. But he says, here, they're praying to wooden idols. They pray to a God they can't save. But God can save, he says in verse 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it? Well, was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Now, God says things like this. I'm Yahweh, and there's no other God. And people say, see, the divine counsel viewpoint's wrong because God is the only God, and there aren't any other gods. Well, there are no other gods was an ancient biblical slogan of incomparability of sovereignty, not exclusive exclusivity of existence. It was a way of saying that a certain authority was the most powerful compared to all other authorities. So God is saying, I'm unique. There's no other God like me. Because He created all the other gods. He says, turn to me and be saved. So these gods can't save you, but I can save you because I'm the Savior. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... From the mouth has gone out righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. That sound familiar? This is our quote from Philippians. It's take, this is where it's taken from. This is Yahweh, the one and only God that's speaking. He says, to me, every knee shall bow. But we get to Philippians and it says, to Christ, every knee shall bow. So which is it? Yes, he's God. Okay, that's the thing. Only in Yahweh. It shall be said to me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incest against him. In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. It is in Yahweh that salvation is going to come. In Isaiah 45, 23, we see a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And in Philippians, this is the title, Lord is ascribed to Yeshua. Because Yeshua the Christ is Yahweh. Alright? So He's the name. The name is Yahweh. These, God, these preachers, these teachers are going out in the, for the sake of the name. They're going out to present the truth of the gospel. Let's go back to 3 John. What's interesting in this little epistle is 
This is the only book in the New Testament that does not specifically mention the name of Yeshua. It's the only place you're not going to find it. But he says, go out for the sake of the name. And I think the Johannian community would have known without a doubt who he was talking about because, again, the gospel so strongly puts forward the deity of Christ. So these men that Gaius was supporting were faithful proclaimers of the name. They proclaimed Yeshua as coming in the flesh. False teachers were denying that. Then John says that these itinerant teachers were accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Now, this is a late first century use of Gentiles as an allusion to pagans or unbelievers. Okay, If these Gentiles were Christians, they wouldn't have a problem taking money from them. All right, the, the Gentiles is used strictly here as unbelievers. This is the Greek word ethnikos. It's used only four times in the New Testament. Matthew uses it three times and then once here. Matthew 5.47 And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. This is clearly a reference to unbelievers. All right? Now, the ancient world of the early church was filled with missionaries and preachers from all different backgrounds, and they often supported themselves by taking offerings from the general public. In other words, they go and they speak and they want you to pay them. All right? But John said that these Christian missionaries should take nothing from the non-Christians. Instead of soliciting funds from the general public, they're to look support from the believers. What is one of the biggest gripes that non-Christians have about the church? They want your money. They want your money. You know, that's, we got to not, you know, and I appreciate churches that say, listen, if you're a visitor, we don't want you to give. When that plate comes by, we do one better. We don't even pass a plate, okay? So there you go. You don't have to worry about it, all right? We don't want to take money from the unsaved, all right? It's God's people who are responsible to carry the ministry. Now, as they travel from place to place, they're dependent on the Christian community for hospitality because they didn't solicit or accept funds from the unbelievers. So he says, therefore, we ought to support people like these. The Gentiles aren't supporting them. They're not getting paid from the unbelievers. So, listen, we ought to do this. Now, what's interesting here, the word ought here is the Greek aphelo. And aphelo means to be in financial debt. But it came to be used figuratively to be obligated or indebted to somebody. This is, often, this is an often repeated moral admonition. We see this used in 1 John 3, 16. It says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We're obligated to do this. Now listen, the word off here, aphelo, this word is used 35 times in the New Testament, and it's translated owe, owed, obligated, indebted, ought, must have, be responsible. John is saying that believers are obligated to support faithful teachers. He says, listen, they're not getting money from the Gentiles, so we ought to support men like this. In other words, we're obligated. That's our job. This is the same thing Paul says in Galatians 6.6, where he says, let the one who is taught in the Word share... All good things with the one who teaches. The word share here is the Greek word koineo, and it means to share with others, to communicate, to distribute, to be a partner. 
So God is laying down a principle here that those who are blessed by the Word of God through faithful teachers are to provide for the needs of those who are teaching. And in our text, John is saying the same thing. Believers are obligated to support faithful teachers. Now, if you got that, hang on to it and look what he says next. That we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, the that here is a hina purpose clause, and it indicates results of the support of the... So, you result, the result is, we're obligated to support these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. The Christian who helps to support them in their efforts becomes a sunergos, which means a companion, a co-laborer in cooperation with the truth. Now, the first person plural here, we may be, is inclusive, referring to the author, Gaius, and all Christians, all who become fellow workers in cooperation with the truth by supporting the efforts of traveling teachers and their efforts to teach the truth. We've just joined with them. We've become partners with them. Now, in 2 John, John warned his readers against providing hospitality to the false teachers. For to do so, he said, would make them sharers in their wicked deeds. 2 John 1, 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greetings. Whoever greets him partakes in his wicked works. Now, you get that? That's important. John is saying that to show hospitality or even greet these false teachers is to fellowship with them. It's to partake literally in their evil works. That's pretty strong, people. We're not even to give verbal encouragement to false teachers. Because if you're helping support these false teachers, guess what? You're taking part in what they're doing. You're a partner with them in their evil works. But 3 John 8, with respect to the faithful itinerant teachers, he counsels Gaius to do the opposite. He says, therefore, we ought to support people like this, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. He's encouraging him to provide hospitality to those who proclaim the original message, for in doing so, he becomes a fellow worker in the truth. And what he is trying to say here is when we share finances with a false teacher or a true teacher, we're partaking in what they're doing. Please get what he's saying here. We have a share in the work that others do by supporting them materially. You're sharing in their work. If you support the false teachers, you're partaking of the wicked work. If you support the true teachers, you're sharing in the good work. Listen to Yeshua's words, Matthew 10, 40. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Now, that's in, he doesn't say you'll get rewarded. He says you get a prophet's reward. What the prophet gets, you get because you're sharing. You're helping support that. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. 
You're seen as doing what they're doing. You're partaking with them because you're supporting them. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So by receiving a prophet, they would receive a prophet's reward. Bottom line, be careful who you support. That's what he's saying. Be careful who you support here. Okay? Do your homework. And if you find someone who is faithfully teaching the truth, then support them. And by doing so, you become a fellow worker, a soon ergos, a joint companion in their labor. I think this is pretty amazing. You know? You get the same reward they get because you made it possible for them to do what they do. You'll receive a faithful teacher's reward by supporting them because you're making it possible. And Gaius' faithfulness involves not only holding correct doctrine, but also persisting in correct action. In the context of the letter, that correct action is thought of primarily in terms of providing hospitality to those itinerant preachers who needed his help and needed his support. Now, as I said earlier, this, the thing that's so amazing to me here is Gaius is not mentioned as an elder, as a deacon, no office that we know of, but he just, and he, listened. he risked something, because if you were paying attention in the reading, Diotrephes likes to throw people out of the church if they're helping others, because he doesn't want that. We'll look at that next week. But so he's, he's taking a risk here, and he's helping out these teachers. And so because of this, Gaius, who we don't even know anything more of him that, than we learn in this text, he is enshrined in sacred scripture as a man who is being praised by what he's doing. He not only had an open heart and an open home, he had an open hand. And he's sharing and he's helping these guys to do what they're doing. He helped make possible the teaching of the truth, and thus he became a co-worker who taught the truth. And that's why Paul says he was a man who's walking in the truth. He believed the truth, but he also lived it out. And he did everything he could do to make sure the truth got out by helping those who were teaching the truth. What an incredible man we meet. Don't, like I said... Don't know anything more about him than what we find right here, but what we know is this guy stood out in this church. However big it was, he just was there and he was going to help people. He didn't need to go to the elders and talk to them about it. Matter of fact, they didn't want this, we'll see. He helped people because they were teaching the truth. The truth was important to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us, Lord. I thank you for this man, Gaius. Look forward to meeting him someday, Lord. So Many good things to say about this man. He took a stand, Lord. He believed the truth, and he stood on it, and he helped those who preached it. Thank you, Lord, for people like this. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace to us. Amen. Okay. Questions, comments? Yes. Do you think that in the closing... The parable of the talents with the servant with the one talent kind of ties in where he said, I would have desired that you would put it in the bank and collect interest. Do you think that kind of ties in? Yeah, I think that can tie in the parable of the talents, the idea that you're taking what you have and you're using it. And if what you have is finances, 
and you're helping someone who's doing the truth, then yeah, you're partaking that. You're, you're using what you have. And that, the idea of those parables, whatever you have, you're supposed to be using it for the Lord, okay? For His glory. So we have to make sure that our our uh, finances are going to good work. Yeah, I, I could not caution you more on what you do with your finances as far as giving to organizations. Mm. Oh, my word. I mean, mm. to find someone who is not, you know, ripping people off. What You know, I mean, we supported... Um, Voice of the Martyrs. You know, because we thought, hey, they're doing a good work. And then I found out, some, because one of the listeners sent me some information on it, you know, they built this $10 million building, you know, and there was just a lot of corruption going on. You know, they're taking the money. How's it helping these missionaries, these persecuted Christians? How are they being helped by them having a huge building? So we just, we stopped our support there. We changed it to persecuted church instead of voice of the martyrs. And because I think it's important that we hear of what believers are going through around the world, because we always think we got it rough here, you know, to hear what's going on with them. So that's important. But please, yeah, just, you know, do some investigation, do some digging when you support. It's just it's just sad to me to hear, you know, they're they're soliciting your fund funds and then when you get it, it you know maybe 10% of it goes to where it's supposed to everything else is going to pay staff and you know pot pad people's pockets you know so we have to be careful because like I think that the wording in second John is very important you partake of their evil deeds and you're not gonna the excuse I didn't know probably won't fly because we're called to be Bereans in every area and do some research, dig, and find out what's happening. What are we doing? We done? Anybody else? All right. It says, do you think that most of the church has fell into the idea of the government being the ones who support instead of us? So, yeah, I think that, you know, the government has taken over what the church's role is, all right? The church is to take care of orphans and widows, to help people out. The government is, to, I don't even like to talk about government because it gets my blood boiling so bad, okay? They're a bunch of thieves and crooks, and they're just, you know, they're padding their own pockets. I mean, do you hear what the Biden administration wants to do? It wants to get $450,000 to, to illegal people because we separated them. Oh, they came here illegally? I, I just... And, and then you got people like AOC saying, well, the illegals haven't broken any laws. I'm like, hello, it's illegal to come here. Okay? So yeah, you broke a law when you came here illegally. Yes, it is the church's job to take care of people. That You know, that the church has always done that. You know, to, to meet people's needs, to help people out. And then the government took it over, and now the church uses its money to build buildings. And I just, you know, to pour all that money into a building. 
Yeah, buy jets or whatever. It doesn't it doesn't help the people at all. But yeah, the church is the one, you know. But now the government's just it's handing out money like crazy. That's why we have such a worker shortage right now in the country. People getting paid to stay home. Why go to work? What's the point? So yeah, it's it's very sad, but yeah, we've uh Someone asked, can we support missionaries who preach Jesus coming back? I guess that's a choice you have to make, you know. Um, that would be true if you were in the first century. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, again, we support several missionaries uh, that believe what we believe, you know, who love the Lord, who serve the Lord, and I, it's just, it's hard. It's hard to find I was a member of a, on staff at a big Baptist church in the area, and I was in charge of benevolence. Okay, they were trying to hang on to all their money. Okay, so they put me in charge of benevolence. Anybody came looking for money, they sent them to me. And you know, I my attitude is, I rather err on the side of love for immediate needs. You know, you don't have time to do research. This person, I'm getting put out or whatever. We would help them. Then I would do some research and find out. They scammed us for the most part. Had a guy come down at the altar call crying, I got cancer, I don't have much time to live, and I got this and that, you know, okay, let's, you know, help him out immediately and then start looking into it and find out, no, it's a scam. He'd been to many churches in the area, he didn't have cancer, he was just playing people, and there's so much of that. It's hard to find people who genuinely have a need that you can help out. People come here all the time asking for money. You know, they come, they're knocking on the door, hey, can we have this? Can we have that one lady come here? Oh, I'm dying of cancer, and my husband left me, and I got nothing, and I'm, I'm at this motel room, and they're putting me out. So we went over to the motel. We paid for several nights. We got her some food, got her some stuff, and then I went in, and I talked to the clerk, you know, kind of f- figure out what's going on. Oh, her boyfriend's back there with her. He's still there back there. I'm like, really? Okay, you know, we got scammed. Yeah, not, not surprised. But again, I want to err on the side of love. Well, this lady shows up later. I don't know how, how much longer it was, a year later or whatever. She comes walking in, and we look at her, and we go, Hi, how's the cancer doing? And she just looked at us like, Oh, man, I've been here, haven't I? <laughs> you know? I mean, we got her. We busted her, you know? Like, how's the story going? You know, it's just... And some people just keep coming back. And, again, it's hard not to help people if they're in a desperate... Some guy come back, Can you buy me a tire? I can't even get to work because my car's broke. My tire's bad. And so, yeah, we buy you a tire, you know? And he came four or five times. The last time he came was the last time he'll be helped because he came by. I'm sorry, I'm in a desperate situation again. I'm like, okay, fine, you know. I said, I, I, he had told me he does siding work. So I took him outside. I said, see that siding missing? I want you to fix that. Here, I'm giving, he, I think he was asking for 20, 25 bucks. I gave him 100 bucks. I want you to come and fix that siding. Okay, I'll do that. He never came back. But he never showed back up here again either, you know. And if he does, you know, I'm like, look, I tried to help you out, you know. I think it's important to help people, but listen, you have to be so careful because (laughs) there's so many scammers out there. But, you know, it feels good to help people. Someone who's got a genuine need, I love helping people that have a need. You know, it's just, like I said, it's hard finding them. You know, it just really is.